Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good to see everybody here at the Nine Mile Campus. Good morning to those of you that are worshiping with us over at Spanish Trail and to those of you, wherever you may be, tuning in uh, to our online broadcast. It's a wonderful thing to be in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, and it's a wonderful thing to be in worship. Can we put our hands together one more time and just say thank you to Jesus for a wonderful Lord's Day, amen. We are continuing this morning in our <clears throat> series of messages called The Jesus Method. We're looking at uh, Jesus' method of teaching, particularly teaching by the strategic use of pointed questions for the purpose of developing sharp disciples who not only understand Jesus, but long to live and be like Jesus, which, which is what we're about certainly at Hillcrest. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ by worshiping God, connecting with others, and serving the world. And that was the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, to draw people unto himself so that they might understand God's plan and purpose and that they might become like him. Part of his teaching ministry involved the strategic use of questions. And today as we open our Bibles to the third gospel, the gospel of Luke, Luke 17, we're gonna come to a question that's posed in an out-of-the-way story that's found only in the gospel of Luke. And the question, to get it on the table right here at the beginning is simply this, where are the nine? Now that's kind of a random question and I fully understand that taken by itself, it really doesn't communicate apart from a measure of context. And so I say we just give it a little context by taking a look at the story where the question first pops up. It's in the 11th verse beginning here in Luke chapter 17. Let's take a look and see what it says. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest and as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, we're not... Ten cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Father, as we come into your presence today, I want you to know that we're grateful that you open up the windows of heaven and give us access, give us a foretaste of glory divine. And now we beg your Holy Spirit 
to move in power among us, to speak to our hearts and do what only the Spirit of God can do, and that is take the Word of God, illumine it so that it becomes real to us that we might not only know it and understand it, but that we may live it to bring honor and glory to our risen Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Now, <clears throat> this is a familiar story, even though it is only found in one gospel, and like many of you, uh, I've read it many times, and whenever I do, I'm really always moved by it because it is, I think, such a powerful story. If we could dramatize it and show it on the screen, it probably would move us to tears. And the important thing is, it's a story that's obviously about gratitude at its core. And the question Jesus poses, and really as we read it, we find it's really not one question, it's three consecutive questions that he asks in order, all of it having to do with this one critical concept that I'd like to get out on the table right here at the very beginning, and it's simply this, are you a thankful person? Is your life marked by a constant sense of gratitude? for all that the Lord has done for you? Are you grateful for your life? Are you grateful, truly grateful for your family? Are you grateful for your home? Are you grateful for your church? Are you grateful for your livelihood, for your freedom? Most importantly, are you grateful for what the Lord has done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for the cross of Christ this morning? Generally speaking, most people, I think, uh, are not overly thankful as a matter of course. Most Americans especially, most in the free world, tend to live with um, something of an entitlement mentality, truth be told, where they think they deserve everything they get or think they deserve everything they want, and they think they have a reason to be upset whenever they don't get everything they think they deserve in life. Most of the time, our level of gratitude, our level of thankfulness is really conditioned on the level of our expectation, on what we think we ought to receive from the Lord or what we think we ought to receive from others. I mean, it's easy to be grateful when you turn 16 and mom and dad give you that shiny new BMW 3 Series, amen. But because you've spent 16 years riding around in mom's dad and dad's really nice cars with the leather package and the smooth ride, if it so happens, and I'm sure it never did and never will with anybody in the room, but if it so happens that you end up not with the three series, but with a hand-me-down Buick with 142,000 miles on it, then the reality is you're likely not to be quite so thankful. We're conditioned, social psychologists call this hedonistic adaptation. We adapt to the pleasures of life in such a way that if we ever have to go backwards for whatever reason, we can't be grateful. It's why it's really easy to move from a Ford Maverick to a Range Rover, but it's really hard 
for most people when you have to give up the Range Rover and go back to the Ford. Isn't that right? Because we've con become conditioned to our expectations. And that's true, I think, with most people. And yet the reality is you read enough of the Bible and you find that the Scriptures teach that gratitude ought to be one of the most obvious characteristics, one of the most consistent outcomes of a Christian disciple's life. I'm always reminded of the great statement that Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There are lots of things about God's plan and purpose for our life that we tend to find mysterious from time to time. But this is not one of them. Concerning you and you and you and you and you, concerning all of us who walk in the favor of God, in the grace of his salvation, it is the will of God for us to give thanks in all things, all the time. But that's a challenge for most people. <clears throat> Last fall, Judy and I were in Nashville attending a family funeral. And we had some time between the memorial service and the committal service that we had to kill because of some scheduling issues. And so my little family got together with my wife's brother's little family who we don't see very often. <clears throat> and we went to a nearby coffee shop. Uh, it was a unique coffee shop, a standalone coffee shop, pretty good size. I remember the building that it was in when I was a little boy. It was used for something else, and they'd completely remodeled it. And I walked in there not having ever been in there before and thought, what a wonderful place. And we went up and began to place our orders. And I was going to be really generous and buy everybody's drinks, but I was whispering to my family, let them get what they want. Everybody in my family gets a small drink because they all cost about $18 in there a piece. And so when I got up there, I made my order, and then the lady just told me thank you very much and turned around and began with others to prepare the order. And I said, well, how much is the order? How much is this gonna cost me? And she said, oh, it's not gonna cost you anything. And I said, well, what do you mean it's not gonna cost me anything? You know, I'm a pastor, and so sometimes that happens. People will pay me dinner, and I'll start looking around the room trying to identify somebody that spotted me and picked up the tab. That happens every so often. Man, but I was a long way from home, and so I turned and looked around. I didn't see anybody in there that I knew. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she pointed down in front of the cash register a stack of business cards, and she said, the man that owns this heating and air company here in town is buying everybody's drinks today in our coffee shop. And I said, he's buying everybody's drinks, everybody's drinks. I said, all day long, all day long, very busy coffee shop. And I couldn't believe it. And then I asked her, any size drink? And she said, any size drink. And I said, supersize everything. And she did. And we walked around having to drink drinks like this. And I picked up one of those business cards and I said, give me one of those. I'm gonna take one of those because I need to tell that guy 
how much I appreciate this generosity. And she said, well, I wish you would. You're the first person who picked up a card all day long. We come into this world oftentimes with an entitlement attitude. Like we deserve everything that we get in life. And I ask the question again this morning, are you really a grateful person? Pastor Martin Luther put it this way, this is the virtue characteristic of real Christians. Their worship of God at its very best, they thank God and they do it with all their heart. Now let's turn our attention to the text for a few minutes this morning because this story here in Luke chapter 17 happens late in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at blind Bartimaeus. This event happens about the same time along the same journey, though it took place several days before Jesus would get to Jericho and meet up with blind Bartimaeus. The Bible says here that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's left Galilee and he's out in the no man's land between Galilee and Samaria, working his way south. He would spend his last Passover there in Jerusalem where he'd of course meet with the Roman cross. And as he goes through the no man's land on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, He's met by a band of lepers, 10 of them, the Bible tells us, each of them in various stages of physical decay. Now, these guys would have appeared to us like they just walked off of an episode of The Walking Dead. Leprosy was kind of the first century equivalent of the Ebola virus, and you know how bad that is. I remember when There was a doctor who contracted it just two or three years ago and they brought him to Embry University Hospital and everybody was cleared out and there was a helicopter overhead and everybody came out of that ambulance with a hazmat suit on as they escorted him into a secure part of the hospital. What would you do if somebody front and center stood up and said, hey everybody, I've been diagnosed with Ebola. There'd be chaos in the room. Well, that's what happened whenever a leper came around way back in the first century. You couldn't get within six feet of a leper and not become defiled according to the law of Moses. And that six feet became 150 feet if the wind was blowing from behind you. And that's why lepers often cloistered together. They removed themselves from the society and they cloistered together. The only real community that they had was fellow lepers So they were outcasts, they were social outcasts, religious outcasts, separated from their communities, separated from their families because they were considered unclean and they were considered cursed by a holy God. If a leper walked into your home, he'd defile the whole house and everything in it from the furnishings all the way up to the beams of the roof and he wouldn't really have to come into the house. All he had to do was stick his head through the door. Everything instantly becomes defiled. That's why nobody wanted to get anywhere near these people. You didn't touch a dead body if you were a Jew and you didn't come in contact with a leper. And all of that explains why these men, one Samaritan and presumably nine Jews, are shouting to uh, to Jesus from a distance, right? They're hollering at him because they know they can't come up close to him. So they're shouting from a distance. They'd likely heard of Jesus. 
They knew of Jesus. They, they, that's identified by the fact they call him by name. They know who he is. They ascribe him a title, Jesus, Master. Have mercy on us. And that's a sign, of course, they respected his authority. They'd heard about him. They'd heard of those healing miracles. They probably knew that he had healed lepers before. And indeed he had. Luke makes that clear earlier in his gospel. Once again, we see Jesus stopping. Aren't, don't you love it? Jesus is never too busy to stop. He moves and he's active. He's a busy man, but he's not too busy for you. Amen. And he's not too busy for me. Jesus is willing to have his schedule interrupted in order to demonstrate the goodness of God, to be compassionate and to be merciful. And we see that once again in Jesus. He is moved with compassion at the desperation of the condition of these men by the urgency of their plea. Jesus, master, just like blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. Here, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And don't you know that's a prayer that our Lord loves to answer? If you've never had to pray that kind of prayer, oh God, have mercy on me. There's sure to come a time in your life where this will be the prayer, the only thing you know how to utter. Times will get that tough in life. Is there anybody in the room this morning that's ever felt like their life was miserable? Is there anybody in the room this morning that's ever had a condition you've been told was incurable? Is there anybody in the room this morning that's ever had a situation that you thought was not fixable? Anybody ever felt hopeless? Any, anybody ever felt isolated? Anybody ever felt alone in life? And you took those conditions, that feeling of hopelessness and helplessness, the only thing you knew to do because everybody else had fallen short, you took it to the Lord. And time came where after every possible solution was exalt, uh, exhausted, out of nowhere, you call the name of Christ and he's willing to stop. He paid attention to your need and he provided a remedy and the hope that enabled you to keep going. The Bible says here that when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, that's an interesting thing because the Bible does not say that Jesus instantly healed them. That's the thing about Jesus. You really can't put Jesus in a box because Jesus doesn't always do the same thing in the same way. And he won't for you. How he moves in my life probably will be different than how he moves in your life and how he moves in the life of your neighbor. And that's why you have to be very careful about playing the comparison game because Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus immediately upon his faith. But he doesn't do that here. He just gives a demonstrable command to these men that obviously required a measure of faith on their part. The Bible doesn't say he healed them. The Bible says he commanded them, go and show yourself to the priest 
and go and do that even though your bodies are still all messed up. Now, normally, we would have expected Jesus just to wave his hand and all of those scales fall off of their skin and all of the body parts that had fallen off to be instantly repaired, but that's not what happens here. Jesus is kind of following the letter of the law from the book of Leviticus where he instructs these men to go and show themselves to the priest so the priest could examine them and declare them to be clean once again, which was something that only a priest could do. And then once the priest examined their condition and examined their skin and said to them, yes, here's the deal, you're clean, they'd go through an eight-day ceremonial period of cleansing. After they'd done that, they would be then declared fit to go and rejoin their family and go and rejoin their community. And you can imagine what a great day of rejoicing that would have been. The only thing is, the healing hadn't happened yet. So Jesus is telling them to do something that at first doesn't make any real sense. It would make better sense if Jesus healed them first and then says, say to them, go now and show yourself in your beautiful condition to the priest. <clears throat> but that's not what he does. He gives them a command that requires them to have enough faith to believe that something was going to happen between go and show. Everybody with me? So they turned to go, but in turning to go, they had to believe that there was going to be a radical change before they showed up at the home of the priest. Because if they show up at the home of the priest in the same condition, in which they turn away from Jesus, things are gonna get ugly really fast. Everybody tracking with me? Because the priest isn't gonna like that. He's not gonna wanna become unclean. He's not gonna want his family to become unclean. And these guys are gonna have to break all manner of law potentially in order to do that. They're gonna have to go into town. They're gonna have to walk past people they're going to have to do everything that they had been told not to do in order to do what the Lord tells them to do. And yet they do it. Sure enough, we're told here in verse 14, as they what? As they went, they were cleansed. J.C. Ryle says, help meets them in the pathway of obedience. How ironic. It's like the baseball player that says, you know, the, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Amen. I'm telling you, the more obedient you are to Christ, the more likely good things are going to happen to you in your life. It's all about a willingness to obey because there's tremendous blessing whenever you obey the voice of the Lord. There is great blessing in obedience, even when you don't know how it's going to work out, even when you don't have all the facts. I have people talk to me all the time that are in a terrible situation and they have got in their mind a response that they can make but they are iffy about it because they're really not sure it's going to jive with the Bible. And so it's almost like they're hoping beyond hope that their pastor is going to tell them, you know what? What happens in this office stays in this office. You don't tell, I won't tell. And no, this is kind of shady stuff, 
but I can see where you've done a cost-benefit analysis and where you've added the numbers and things would indeed seem to work out better if you went down this course or if you took that shortcut. The problem is I don't ever do that. And they don't have any answers if they stay true to the word of God. Everybody tracking with me? There will come a time in your life sooner rather than later where you're going to have to determine, I don't have all the answers and I don't know how this mess is going to work out. I don't, have, uh, don't know how this thing is going to clear up. But my conscience is captive to the word of God and I do know this, I will not compromise the clear truth of the word of God. I'm going to obey no matter what. You have to come to the conclusion in your life that nothing is more important for a disciple than staying true to the word of God, even when it doesn't add up on paper and even when it doesn't make sense to others. These men were willing to do that. They went in the absence of understanding and something happened because as they went, the miracle occurred. Their hair began to grow back. Somehow their ears and their noses began to reform. Stubby fingers and toes began to reemerge into fully formed hands and fingers and feet. They were made well because they trusted the living Lord. They trusted the word of God and they were willing to be uncompromising in following the voice of Jesus. But you know something as wonderful as the miracle of healing is, the healing really isn't the main point of the story, is it? It's almost an incidental part of the story because this account's not so much about the 10 who were healed as it is about the one who was thankful, the one who was grateful. The other nine got healed, but that's almost an aside in the story. Front and center is the one who turned around. Front and center is the one who turned back to the one who did such good in his life. Ten were healed, but only one came back. Only one said thanks. Look at verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and praising God with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a what? Say it out loud. He was a Samaritan. Have y'all ever noticed how it's always the no good, no account, good for nothing Samaritans that always seem to become the stars of the show in the New Testament? I mean, these were people that were hated by the Jews of their day for a lot of reasons that we've talked about several times before through the years. But they always seem to find themselves right in the heart of the gospel. There's that woman at the well that Jesus meets in John chapter four, a Samaritan woman. And Jesus loves on her. He stops and he talks to her and he asks her to provide him a drink of cool water. And in exchange for the gift of a drink of water, he gives her life living water and changes her forever. And the last picture we have is she's going into her hometown telling everybody about what the Lord had done for her and inviting them to come with her and let me introduce you to a man who told me everything about my life. 
probably one of the two most popular stories Jesus ever told had to deal with a Samaritan. We call him the good Samaritan who looked more like Christ than any Jew that's mentioned incidentally in the story because he was willing to risk in order to minister to the needs of others, to show mercy and to show compassion. When the two that we would have presumed to have been heroes took the selfish route and passed by on the other side. We read in the book of Acts about the incredible revival that took place in Samaria. Of all places, people were thronging to the message of the gospel when in the holy city of Jerusalem, a place that had been looking for hundreds and hundreds of years for the coming of the Messiah, had closed their eyes when the Messiah was literally walking in their midst. The gospel then went to the lowlifes who responded in great numbers. It's seemingly always the Samaritans that are finding themselves in the midst of the gospel, which is another reminder that the gospel's for everybody. Amen, it's for you. And it's for me, no matter what we've done or no matter our background, the gospel has the power to change human lives. And that was true in the life of this one Samaritan, one Samaritan out of the lot of 10. His heart was so full, he just spontaneously responded to the action of God in his life and to the healing power of Jesus in his life, and he just starts to praise God, the Bible says, with a loud voice. That's a Greek lesson that everybody in the room could understand. The Bible says he started to praise God literally with a phonos megalos, a megaphone, a loud voice shouting and praising God. Don't miss the picture. He starts to go, but he looks back, and then his heart melts, and he begins to run to Jesus. And as he's running, he's literally shouting as if with a megaphone, praises to God the whole way. And when he gets to the Lord, he literally flings himself down at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. The text literally says he falls on his face before Jesus. Dr. Riken calls this an appreciation born out of desperation. And that's a beautiful way to put the scene because I'm pretty sure that most of us in the room know exactly what that feels like. Have you ever been in a world of hurt? I mean, in a really pressure cooker type of experience where you felt like you were just going to blow. You just didn't know how much more you could take. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of that hard place, maybe even an impossible place with no hope and no answers, out of nowhere, there's a breakthrough that happens. I don't know what it looks like, but you do. I mean, the symptoms just go away. And then a check shows up in the mail or somebody calls on the phone and asks you to forgive them and says, I want the relationship to be made right again. And because the burden is so obviously lifted, you're just moved to start spontaneously praising the Lord. Remember, there have been many times in my life where that's happened. The only thing I could do was just start to cry and say, thank you, Jesus, over and over and over again. That's what happens here. And when it does, Jesus 
Ask this non-clean Sumerian an important series of rhetorical questions. Were there not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? If the other nine were Jews, again, this is like the parable of the Good Samaritan all over again. We would have expected those guys to have been the first to go back and say thank you to Jesus. Thank you to the rabbi, to the master teacher. They were calling him master of all things. But they don't because apparently they saw themselves as deserving of the gift. They saw themselves as deserving of the healing. We're the people of God for crying out loud. We deserve this kind of thing to happen to us. This wasn't our fault. They all called Jesus master, but they, apparently they thought the master owed them something. Can I make a statement today? You're all still with me? Say amen. The master owes us nothing. If he owes us anything, he owes us judgment. Isn't that right? He owes us banishment. He owes us hell, if the truth be told. Because sin is an offense to God. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our Lord owes us nothing. In fact, if anything in this story was owed, it was a debt of gratitude that was owed to Christ. And the same is true for every single one of us. We tend to have very short memories when it comes to the blessing of God in our life. And that's why it's so important to learn to express gratitude quickly and repeatedly to God. I think Dustin shared with you last Sunday a kind of a conscription about how to organize your prayer life. And Thanksgiving is always a part of that. I try never to pray a prayer to God without incorporating some way of thanking God, not at the end of the prayer, but at the very beginning. To acknowledge God as God, to acknowledge I would have nothing apart from the graciousness of God, apart from the mercy of God in my life. It's so important to learn to do that early and often and repeatedly in your walk with the Lord. Here only one does that. And it reveals something really significant about his heart. Not just about his skin, not just about his condition. It reveals something about his heart. Notice in verse 19. And Jesus said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you what? Your faith has made you well. Now, some of you may be using translations this morning that say, your faith has, anybody have a different translation? Your faith has what? Saved you, very good. That's actually a literal translation. Luke does not use the normally customary word for healing here. He really doesn't say your faith has healed you. He uses the word that's used all over the New Testament to describe what happens to our hearts when we surrender by faith to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and surrender our life to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. The word that's used is saved. Go your way. Your faith has saved you. So it's very important to notice that the Samaritan does something not only does something that the other nine fails to do, but apparently receives something that the other nine fail to receive. What does he do? He turns back. 
that's a picture of repentance. The word repentance literally means to turn. It's a U-turn, it's a 180. And that's what this man does. He turns away from his condition, away from the others, and he turns back to Jesus Christ. And presumably what we're left to understand is is that he responds to Jesus with something that changes his heart. It's not just a skin-changing faith. It's a heart-changing faith. And that's what makes this story every bit as much a story about salvation as it is about the mercy of Christ as it is about showing gratitude to what God has done. The other nine apparently believed Jesus could change their skin. They had a measure of faith, but it only went skin deep, pardon the pun. It didn't penetrate all the way to their heart. It was as if they felt entitled, but there was no personal gratitude toward the one who restored them. It was as if as soon as they met Jesus, they turned away from Jesus and never gave him another thought. They're kind of like the man that Jesus healed at the beginning of his ministry in the fifth chapter of John, that man at the pool of Bethesda that was paralyzed for nearly 40 years and couldn't get into the pool. Jesus shows up and out of a sheer act of grace touches his body and heals him. That was the guy that we looked at several weeks ago where Jesus asked him the most ironic question of the Bible, do you want to be healed? And he did, but apparently only in his body because he takes up his mat, he walks for the first time, and he walks right away from Jesus Christ. Only to then sell him out to the religious leaders. He had no interest in following the Lord Jesus Christ, and apparently neither did the other nine. They took what was given, no appreciation, no sense of loyalty, no sense of obligation to the healer, they were willing to take from the hand of Christ without ever responding to the heart of Christ. And the question this morning is, what about you? I ask the question again, are you a grateful person? And how do you know? Well, that would take another sermon and I'm out of time this morning. But I can leave you with two or three things. How do you know you're a grateful person? Well, you worship God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, when you come to worship, you don't sit on your hands worshiping the Lord, not if you're truly grateful for what the Lord has done to you. You may not be the best singer of the world, but you're gonna make a joyful noise to the Lord because people who are grateful can't hold it in. They have to get it out. Do you worship the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or do you worship with your hands folded, stuck down in your pockets, crossed in front of you? Do you worship God? Are you a giver? That's another good way to tell. Grateful people tend to be generous people. Do you give of your finances to support the ministry of the gospel? Or are you just consumer? So many are just Christian consumers. They come to church and it's all about what I can take away from it. But a grateful person is a giver. They not only give to the Lord, thirdly, they serve the Lord. Do you worship the Lord? Do you, do you give to Christ? Do you serve Christ? Do you give your time and energy or are you just content to let somebody else get the job done? There's so many ways you can identify real gratitude, but it starts here and the bottom line is this. Are y'all with me? Say amen. 
Grateful people respond to Jesus. That's the bottom line. They respond to the goodness of God. They respond to the goodness of others for that matter. And it begs the question again this morning, where are the nine? Ten were healed. Only one came to Jesus. And the message today is simply this. When it comes to recognizing, when it comes to appreciating all that God has done for you, all that God has done in this life on your behalf through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, the point of the story today is simply this. God help me to be the one. Be the one. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is God's word. Let all who agree say amen this morning.